Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Purposeful Caregiver podcast. We are so excited to be sharing our time today with Anna Maria. Let's just start and have you kind of introduce yourself and just kind of a little bit about you. I am recently married. So my name is Anna Maria Domel. I have entered the Domel family. Uh, We got married January of this year. I'm located in Phoenix, Arizona, actually specifically in Goodyear. Um, After we got married, we got a townhouse and have relocated to the west side. I (laughs) am actually employed with Maricopa County Department of Transportation currently, but I worked as a paid caregiver for, I guess, over a little over a year, not quite a year and a half. I was working as an administration for a home care company non-medical home care. I fell into it through working for a physical therapist, occupational therapist clinic that also had the owner had uh, another business working in home health care. So I took a position working in administration and a position popped up not far away from where I was living at the time. And they couldn't find the right fit for the position. I offered to step in until they could find someone who was the right fit. And we all kind of knew that the painting was on the wall, that if I did that, that I was never going to come back to administration and that I was going to become a full-time caregiver. To give you a little bit of background, my mother is a um, retired pain management nurse. I grew up with my mother working in a hospital my whole life and never found much interest in a medical career, not thinking about outpatient care and what occupational therapists and physical therapists had to offer. And through working with this particular individual, I got exposed to working with speech therapists, as well as with music therapists and all of the partnerships that are required in terms of, you know, all of the medical care from everything to the more clinical side of medication and diagnosis and the neurologist that are involved to the other side, which is, you know, the more hand in hand every day, how do I go about living my life now that I have a different body essentially to function in and what that does to the individual and what that does to the family. The struggle that I've had from the beginning is the idea of being a caregiver and identified as a caregiver is that there are a lot of resources and outlets for family members and to go to therapy with their loved one and individual ones for the husband, wife, children, but not necessarily for paid caregivers. So that was probably one of the biggest challenges for me in this position was I was lucky enough that I, having worked in admin, I was very close with my supervisor and I spoke with her on a regular basis about this particular case. And I was very lucky in that because I, having never done this before and never worked in this type of position, it was extremely emotionally, physically, mentally challenging, more so than just what I ever anticipated. I was working with an individual who was very functional on her own. When you think normally caregiver, you think of someone who's got a lot more debilitation and that wasn't the case in this scenario. A part of what I offered was, you know, the emotional aspect of having someone to do everything with in a daily capacity that was frustrating and challenging and going through those emotional hurdles of you know, well, I used to be able to do this and now I can't do it. Or if I can do it, I can't do it to the ability that I'm used to being able to do it. You know, wanting to respect HIPAA laws, wanting to respect the privacy of, you know, what 
my client was going through, you know, I tried to be as supportive as I could. And the benefit of this, you know, I think caregiver, one of the the things that I would like to see change is, you know, this idea of a caregiver, you know, really a partner. There is the term of care partner. And I've heard that on some of your podcasts about there's this idea that a caregiver is the one doing everything. And that's very much not the correct nomenclature, because this is very much a partnership and understanding, learning the individual that you're assisting, but presenting and in that the work at the end of every day was not anything that I accomplished. I was purely the cheerleader. I was purely the person to constantly give, you know, the pat on the back and giving recognition where there wasn't necessarily recognition that you knew you even needed, you know. And so this was beneficial for me because one of my personal downfalls is that I don't give myself enough recognition on a regular basis of the things that I do. (laughs) So by having to do it for another individual, I think the reason that we work so well together and we made such a good partnership is that everything that I said to my client, I also was saying for my own, my own benefit and my own good and for my own slow down, take your time, pace yourself. You know, those reminders of a daily basis that I think the general population could benefit from until you're forced physically to do those things. It's very hard to have those moments of just sitting and being. And I've had a pretty extensive background in mindfulness practice and therapeutic support because of my own struggle with anxiety ever since I was very young. And so a lot of those tools were tools that just went very well hand in hand with caregiving, for lack of a better term. Those were the things that I had to rely on when I was dealing with my own individual struggles, and they just worked very well. And again, it's I know that there's saying the right things, but there's also the way that you say things. I can't overemphasize that enough in terms of developing a trusting relationship and how you say things and being, like I said, there's cheerleading and there's moral support that goes along with this. And so my own personal frustration in terms of the caregiving industry is seeing the revolving door, seeing the burnout, seeing how much the nature is that people are going to burn out and that you're going to have to move on. And the length of time that people work with an individual depending on their debilitation, can also go hand in hand. And that I think there's a strong need for, obviously, family support for the individual support of the person going through what their experience is, and for the family and for the family members, but also for the other people involved in the care of the individual. And I've looked into working in assisted living and working in, you know, different environments where It may not be as challenging, but I think no matter where you go, that part of what makes a good caregiver is putting heart into something. And when you do that, it will eventually drain you to a way that, you know, part of my goal throughout this year long process was how do I continue to still be the person that I am and give the quality of daily life and share in that with someone else without giving too much. You know, how do you find the balance? How do you find those boundaries? And in applying to OTA school, I did, you know, speak to the teachers and some of them spoke to how their students go through some of that. And that is a big transition for students. And a lot of the students still rely on the support of the school. 
after they've gotten into their positions. And I don't know if that was some of your experience when you first started of, okay, now I have these great tools and I know how to do this job. And I need to learn how to balance self-care as well as providing quality care. Even going back in the beginning, commenting about how, you know, you really didn't have much training or exposure to caregiving, you know, beyond what maybe you've seen your mom do in kind of that clinical setting, having the support of your team to guide you. And in non-medical home care, so often it is owners are not always clinical providers, people that are signing up to be caregivers may be looking to continue on in their education or they're going into it as a means to an end and may not necessarily be entering into paid caregiving as their career until they find this, you know, passion for it. Like you said, it's human nature to want to serve and and help others and please others, whether, you know, you have that empathy or compassion or people-pleasing tendencies, but when you do hear that term caregiver, that really is what it implies. My role is to serve you and give you what you need. But I like how you highlighted it really is more of a partnership. And that can be difficult for us as care providers to see, especially when we're not fully trained, because the person is sick or they're injured or They have these different conditions that limit them from living the quality of life that they used to live or they wish they could live or return to. And so to fill those gaps, it can be common to want to (laughs) overcompensate. And that certainly does to lead a high burnout rate in industry. It's a huge issue, you know, beyond just oh, well, all owners have to do or managers have to do is blah, 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 just because the nature of the work. So for you to be able to highlight having such a supportive team and feeling open to asking those questions about how to better care for your client and being able to take some of those experiences of your own and tools to be able to support that. Unfortunately, we in the healthcare industry or non-medical home care or family caregiving, especially, we recognize that too late until we're already burnt out. And certainly that leads to quitting. It can lead to family feuds and strained family dynamics. It can lead to drug and alcohol abuse and mental illness. And it really just perpetuates. And then people kind of feel like there's no other alternatives. And if people could have the resources and tools. And then your most recent point about the communication is so crucial because communication in any relationship is important. And most of us don't really know how to communicate effectively. (laughs) We want to be heard. So we're going to communicate the way we think that is best. And then maybe the person we're caring for is feeling defensive or feeling, you know, not good enough or whatever. And so they're not receiving that information well. That can be really difficult and frustrating. And then, you know, how do you work through that? So I'm really glad that you kind of highlighted so many of those areas. You mentioned applying to OTA schools and kind of exploring that once you've kind of found this path. What was that kind of journey like? What were 
some areas in your caregiving experience that because you hadn't really been in the therapy world before. I had worked for an occupational therapist and a physical therapist as a tech. And so a lot of my experience while there was exposure to what happened in the clinic, it was more teaching exercises and helping people with their prescriptions, you know. And so I had gone to school and gotten my personal certification. I was coming at the whole process from a mentality of physical fitness and health. And that was kind of the direction that I saw my career path going. And while I had been in that clinic setting, I was like, well, maybe, you know, something more active. Well, what I didn't realize is that after several health issues resulting after COVID that just I didn't have the physical stamina that I was used to having that I had when I was going through school. The thing that I think was most interesting about the entire process and what I got exposed to was just how amazing of a community I found between the therapist and the occupational, really learning specifically from a day-to-day what an occupational therapist knows that is beneficial in terms of daily living, in terms of knowing how do we relearn activities like getting up and down from a chair? How do I relearn how to get in and out of a car? How do I relearn how to walk? And the experience of applying to the schools was really, it kind of opened my eyes to the need and the extent to which the schools go through in order to have a well-rounded educational program in order to prepare their students for entering the field and what they need to in order to successfully have the critical thinking skills needed that you know, something in my mind, I've always been a very like black and white type person, but that it's almost a very creative field, more so than I ever would have imagined that it was that. And so, you know, one of the interview questions that I had from the school was, you know, how would, you know, here's what you need to do, but you don't have these tools to do it. How would you still do this? You know, and thinking of different ways of doing things. And so it was interesting, because I'm like, it really surprised me that this didn't fall into my mind sooner. But again, my mother works in a hospital and I just was like nothing medical. Like I just, I wasn't going to have it. But I really was greatly reliant upon the things that I had been exposed to. Like you said, just being with her bedside, just for the periods that I was. And obviously the way that she raised us and the type of mother she was, I got a lot of that. The biggest thing that I don't think anybody can learn that has to, again, come from trust and honesty in a relationship is letting someone help you when you're used to not needing help. And mm-hmm. the family as well, the dynamic of the individual who is having to relearn these things or learn how to adapt to a new way of living, but the whole entire family, everybody surrounding the individual does. It's not just an individual who has to go through you know, the therapy, it's everybody has to be exposed to that. And while, you know, everyone says I rely on my family, my family is important to me. You know, I mean, my family is a great example because none of us like to accept help and we're all like to do everything on our own and be, you know, the person says I can do it on my own. I can do it beginning to end and not asking for help. But, you know, there are times when we force help upon each other, but it's done from a loving, caring way in such a way that the person will hear. And I've been very blessed that I come from a family that has given me that because I know that that in itself is a gift. And so I was very lucky that a big support for me that gave me support was the family. I had an adopted family through my client 
that was supporting me through the whole journey and giving me not just advice, but experience of what they were going through and, and everyone could help brainstorm. And I think the challenge is the biggest challenge is just, first of all, everyone being on a different page of what they see as being, well, this is what's most <laughs> desirable, obviously. And this is what I think should happen. And the person themselves going through it has their own experience of, well, I don't want to do that. Or I don't see myself being able to handle that. And having decisions thrust upon you is for a person who's extremely independent and self-serving to have to go through that loss. But there's so much grief that goes along with this process. That was probably the biggest surprise to me through this whole thing. I mean, and obviously I knew there were going to be lots of things I learned that I wasn't anticipating, but the grief was probably one of the biggest ones. I think that's something that, you know, people don't recognize is, you know, all the family members or friends that are involved in meaning well, we all have different backgrounds and different baggage. And so how we're able to cope with potential loss, you know, if death or, you know, chronic illness is kind of within the person's story, or even whether it's temporary or long term. And that's where a lot of these different dynamics can come into play. And so I really like how you highlight the importance of involvement and engagement. And I think, you know, as an occupational therapist, we are creative and <laughs> expert finanglers. And, you know, I've heard even I teach in a OT program and some students coming in, they they know they want to help people and they've heard of occupational therapy, but they don't really recognize the breadth and the depth of what it is we do. When we think of things, you know, that we want to offer, sometimes even as clinicians, we hold back because we're like, oh, that's common sense or, oh, that's so simple. Like, why would I offer that? Because they're going to think I'm ridiculous for bringing that up. But so often when you're in the moment and in the mix, our brains aren't naturally wired to think necessarily like an occupational therapist. It can be a great bridge and liaison where families start to recognize the importance of being involved. And not just an occupational therapist, but I think even as a caregiver, as a paid caregiver or family caregiver, as you're learning how important it is to be involved, because in the clinic setting, that is very common where family members visit and it's like, oh, it's time for therapy. Oh, it's time for medication. And they're like, hands off. Okay, we'll go down to the cafeteria. Oh, we'll just stay in the room. Oh, we'll, we'll leave and we'll come back later. And it's great to have that support when you're sitting in a hospital room, you know, staring at the four walls 24-7. It's great to have somebody in there at that downtime. But it's so crucial and invaluable to be participating in that and really to see what is it like and what are they doing? Because when you go home, you may be involved in some capacity. Maybe you're not physically supporting Maybe you're financially supporting, but if you can kind of understand that person's experience, it may help you to better understand and share where they're, where they're coming from when they're saying, I would choose to have, you know, this as my quality of life instead. And so when families kind of push like, no, mom, you have to keep trying. You're not trying. <laughs> that can be really hard hearing those encouraging words. <laughs> A lot of times people will just say, don't say I'm doing a good job. Don't say I can do better because I can't. This is my best. 
And so that can be really challenging. So you're right to hear that thank you or to take that moment and recognize what a huge impact you have as that caregiver, as that healer, as that clinician can really help bridge some of those strains that tend to come up and creep up maybe unexpectedly in these situations. While some of the the successes of awareness were the days where it was just running down a list, like today you did this, it was really hard. I'm really proud of you for getting through that. Noting everything, every small achievement, recognizing the work it takes and the mental drain of therapy and going through the experience and what it's like for the individual. And then there were times where sometimes my recommendation was, this just needs to be a hug it out moment, or this needs to be a, remember, like when there's an argument happening, and there's a disagreement about, you know, miscommunication, or not liking what, you know, is going on in the environment, say, look, remember, what are we all here for? Like, the reason we're in this, and the reason everyone is, is worked up is because we love and care for one another. And that at the end of the day, that, you know, the reason we're getting worked up is because we all want the best and we all want the best experience and the best quality of life. And that means that we're going to have difference of opinions sometimes, but bringing it back to the basics of just, you know, needing that emotional release of how frustrating it is and how much we want to turn the clock back. And for whatever reason, this was the situation that was given to us. And this is what we're having to go through trying not to give in to that pity party of why things happen to us. And, you know, one of the tools that I learned from dialectical behavior therapy is radical acceptance. And it's probably one of the most difficult skills ever to learn in my life and will continue to be a challenge. And I think it goes a lot in situations like this, where radical acceptance of the condition that you have and the limitations that we have. And the point is, you know, and I think where I kept bringing things back down and kept grounding things in reality is this is hard for me. This is hard for my husband. This is hard for my parents. This is hard when I was a kid, you know, pointing out that while there's something that's challenging and obviously for someone who's done something over and over and over again, and it's never been challenging. And then it is can be really debilitating and frustrating of something's wrong with me. And I said, well, I know that this seems like it's just you. I said, but like just last week or just last night, I couldn't remember what I had for lunch. Or if I had to do, you know, these cognitive tests, my mom and I just recently joked about it. So I'm now benefiting from what I have learned to help my husband and his family deal with his parents who are both having issues and the frustration of trying to do that distance and what it's like for family members who aren't all in the same place and having to want to be present and want to be involved, but can't physically be there with their loved one, remembering and reminding ourselves like, hey, like, this is not easy. And having a moment of what would I do if I was in this situation? How would I handle this? If I was in this situation, how can I approach this in as understanding of a way to where obviously, I don't want my mother, father, brother, sister to feel like I feel sorry for them. But it's an empathetic way of showing recognition for what the experience is. And at the end of the day, you know, it became a joke. Like, I'm like, 
you're the one going through therapy and I'm the one that can't do this. You know, we would be given tasks by the occupational therapist. I'm like, look at mine compared to yours. Like mine's way worse. <laughs> and I'm, you know, I'm the one who has strength issues on my left hand versus both of yours, which can crush mine, you know, and really normalizing. We all have our own burdens and challenges and that it's just more severe in some cases. Moments of humor were our saving grace. One of my blessings, which they found out when I worked in the clinic as well, is that it's very easy to find ways to make fun of me and find ways to laugh at Anna when everything is very difficult and stressful and heavy and you feel like, you know, everything's just going downhill. It's like, well, but look at Anna, you know, <laughs> look at what, you know, where she is at and what her moment of humor was for the day and having been a newlywed. And at that time I wasn't married yet. So going through getting the process of being engaged and getting married and that being a new relationship where you're learning someone new and how to live together with someone, you know, sharing <laughs> all of those moments in a, a new marriage compared to a marriage that was very weathered and the similarities and sharing those memories. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that, you know, was kind of the way that the family was able to give to me and not just accepting and supporting, but also giving their experience of wisdom through the marriage and their family and what I have yet to experience. Remember what your blessings are, you know, at the end of the day, remembering why we wake up every morning and get out of bed because some days it's really hard to do the basic things in life. I was actually married recently to in March. And oh, so, how great. <laughs> so I can relate, <laughs> you know, you go through however long just doing life the way you do life. <laughs> and while you definitely want to share and, you know, love this person, there's so many nuances that you have to learn in certainly communication and compromise and being able to externally voice some of those maybe internal thoughts that we have, you know, because we don't want to hurt somebody's feelings or we want to be respectful or we want to kind of learn how it works together. When we have our own instances in our lives that we're going through, we really can share that with our clients and the people that we are interacting with or coworkers or friends, because, you know, we kind of get in this I call it checklist mentality where it's just like, okay, I have to wake up and here's my to-do list. Or if I'm going to work with a client and I'm going to do an OT eval, I have to get through these things. But if you don't take a moment to kind of be human and do that connection, they can learn so much from us, but we can take it back and learn so much in sharing those little, I mean, we're human. So yes, funny things happen or, you know, maybe, yeah, somebody's a little more clumsy or forgetful just by nature. And so finding those opportunities to give somebody a chance to laugh and, you know, not at the, the mercy of one's <laughs> dignity or self-respect, but in a fun kind of playful way. And as you get to know people, you know what they can tolerate or kind of what their sense of humor is. And that just can be so fun in building that trust and rapport. So that really is special because it allows people to kind of reset. And I just think of a client who was, you know, still working full time and had been through an accident and they were struggling just to be able to live within their apartment. And the wife and 
was injured as well, but was able to help and be the caregiver. And here I am just, I mean, occupational therapists do very personal care things (laughs) with clients, getting vulnerable, asking kind of vulnerable and personal questions pretty well off the bat. Like, hey, I'm Emily. Nice to meet you. Did you go poop today or did you take a shower? Who wiped your butt? Like, you know, some of those things right. people are like, what, who are you? But, you know, we need to get to know people quickly. And so this particular couple was struggling because of their injuries. And we were able to finagle and get creative and work through, you know, the bathroom transfer and the shower. And they wrote it, you know, as a review. And I still think of it often as, you know, he was this prominent person and he just said man I just want to give you a hug but I never thought I'd be hanging out in the bathroom with a stranger and wanting to hug them (laughs) (laughs) and so you know it's just like those moments of of humanness that if we're not willing to be vulnerable and we're not willing to kind of take that step as little you know as small as it seems doesn't have to be those grandiose gestures that can really make a big impact I'm just trying to kind of put a few of the pieces together. You talked about being the paid caregiver and kind of your experience. And then you've kind of mentioned a little bit of your personal journey with anxiety. But some of the areas that you've been working on, it sounds like in personal development on building that different strength. Have you had additional health issues where you've required kind of more support and assistance more recently? Or when you're speaking, are you just kind of giving a combination of your paid work and some of the training from your mom? And is it just kind of a combination? That's a good question. I mean, I started with with anxiety issues when I started college. And, you know, obviously they had been there and from a very young age, but I wasn't aware that that's what I was going through. I mean, no one ever told me or educated me. And my mom and I joke about it still to this day. I mean, we I say we laugh, we joke about it. She feels bad that there were experiences that I was going through when I was very young that she was unaware of in terms of my people-pleasing behavior that started from a very, very young age. My brother and I are very different kids, grew up in the same household, same parents, right? My personality was, I didn't like confrontation. I mean, confrontation was just very difficult for me. And so I would say as I got into more challenging things where I had to experience failures, I had to experience the fact that no one in the world can live to a certain standard of performance 100% of the time. And that's where I think, as I started to have health issues, it coincided with working as a caregiver. And that's kind of why I took this position in admin to begin with, because I quit my job at the clinic and I said, I'm going to go to school full time. And for whatever reason, after COVID, my husband and I did go through mold exposure at the place we were living in conjunction with having COVID a couple of times and we got sick again, but it wasn't COVID and they don't know what it was. And so I struggled with where I was used to dealing with, you know, managing anxiety and depression, debilitating depression resulting after overwhelming periods of anxiety. I then had this physical fatigue that I was unable to function normally. Part of what this partnership through caregiving gave me was that, and they knew it because I would remind them on a regular basis, like, look, I'm rehabilitating my own personal health at the same time that you're working on rehabilitating your own personal health. 
Now, whether or not where you'll get back to or whether we're just going to maintain instead of, you know, going down or if there's a down, then we plateau, whatever that journey is. I am working on regaining my ability to function regularly and, and work on a regular basis. I unfortunately am not back to where I want to be. That is where the partnership with my husband has been both a blessing for me and a curse to me because I say a curse because I'm, it gives me the blessing that he says, I'm going to help you and you have to accept it. And I love you and I want you to take care of yourself. After knowing I've been doing this for over a year for another individual, that it's finally like, okay, guess what? Now it's your turn and you're not going to like it. That's why I say it's a curse because it's like, you're not going to want to accept it. You're going to think opposite. But guess what? You just spent a year telling someone else that they needed to accept your help and it's your turn to do it as well. And he was doing that, you know, throughout this time, but it's been significantly more so. He even throughout the process was huge because he could see where I would come home and have gone through this very tumultuous emotional day and needed the emotional support of, okay, well, now what do you need from me? What can I give you? How can I help you? How can I nurture you? And for me, you know, that's how we learned our relationship. And that for me, you know, physical presence and verbal support was huge. And knowing that, knowing as I'm giving it, that I need to come home and get those things as well. And luckily, meeting the right person who was able to give me those things and say it in such a way and present things in such a way that when he would say things, you know, I would listen, like whatever magical Mm -hmm. power that is. And the family would always tell me, you tell her this, because when I say it, she doesn't listen. But for whatever reason, (laughs) you have the magic and a power. And I said, well... (laughs) (laughs) I wouldn't say it's a magic power. It's the right person saying the right thing at the right time, right? We have this kind of like a caregiver booklet kind of guide that sometimes we'll Mm -hmm. give to clients. And and it doesn't matter what kind of relationship. It could be a friendship or care partner. But knowing how, you know, just asking, how do you like to receive communication when you're stressed out? How, what makes you feel better when you're having a bad day. We kind of have this list and it's just preferences. It's what's your favorite food? What time do you like to wake up in the morning? What's your favorite TV show? I know that if I've had a full day, I like to just come home and be quiet. Like no TV, no lights, just quiet in the room by myself. (laughs) And it can be really overwhelming and stressful if you have to come home from that day and then continue to be on you know, and interact or have response. I mean, we're adults, we all have responsibilities, but how do you balance that when you may have some of these other stressors or other things going on? So to have somebody to take that step and ask those questions is so wonderful. So I appreciate you sharing that. You know, I've I've gotten, I don't know. I mean, you're not quite as far into your marriage as I am, right? But I mean, two months, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I'm already getting asked, you know, how is married life? How is it? You know, I'm granted when it hasn't been here, it's kind of like, well, it's still new. But every time they ask me, I say, it's just, I couldn't have been more blessed with a partner who genuinely hears me and understands me, is willing to make the compromises that I need. And I luckily just happens to have a background in psychology and sociology, which works very much to my benefit. When I come home and need my therapist through my husband, even though I get my own therapy 
elsewhere. And that's, for me, the partnership that I want to bring to him in terms of what he's going through with his parents and his family, because now that I've seen it from the other side, I'm kind of asking questions. And granted, I know it's a source of stress for any family that has to go through seeing a loved one decline in whatever way that is. And even if it's just aging, even if there's no medical diagnosis, it's just aging, you know, and so... I try to give back in ways that I can, while it might not be the way that I would prefer to do it, but I'm like, this is what I can give. And this is what I'm able to do. And, you know, we both were given the book by our woman who did our vows, gave us the book of five love languages, which both of us had actually already read. So we already knew what our love languages (laughs) were. And we were very vocal about that in the very beginning. So we were very aware of, and that's kind of what ended up bringing us together in the end is that we realized that we both understood each other's love languages pretty well, even though they weren't the same. We both could recognize when that was happening, what we were getting from the other person and still ask for what we would prefer, but still getting, you know, doing things our own way and compromising on where we could meet. And I think that that five love languages goes for like you said, every relationship. I mean, we think of it in terms of our romantic relationships, but that goes with Mm -hmm. parents, that goes with friends. My only regret in the entire process over the past few years with my own health struggle is just that my friendships haven't gotten from me what I'm used to giving. But the good news and the benefit of that is that I've laid groundwork that now I have people who reach out to me and care for me and it's it's strange and awkward. And again, it's a constant learning experience when people ask me, well, how are you doing? I'm like, oh, it's more yeah. difficult coming from the other direction. But I think that, you know, when I put things in terms of we're all slowly dying, right? I mean, we all know that that is our inevitable future and all of us want to see it happen in our own way, but none of us probably get to choose what that way is going to be. So having an understanding of it and a recognition of being appreciative of as many moments as we can. Although every time I seem to see my parents, we never take a picture together, even though I tell myself I'm going to carry that moment (laughs) and document and document and document. And I don't, but you know, that was a conversation about my mother and my relationship with my father, because my mom and I are really close. And I told her one of the, the number one promises I made to myself about my relationship, specifically with my father is that when he did ask me for something, or he did reach out that my way of showing my love for him, I know is to do these small things that he asked of me in a timely manner. And the reason I do them right when he asked me is because I will get sidetracked, you know, because life happens. (laughs) And before I know it, I didn't do the thing. So, you know, he always says it doesn't have to be done right now. And I'm like, well, it does, or else it will just get put someplace else, you know, giving back what I can while I can. And to me that, you know, everybody has their own way of showing appreciation. And for me, that's one of the only ways that I have found, like, I obviously cannot financially give back what you have given me in my life, but I can do these other things and hopefully be a testament to the person that you raised me to be. That's so wonderful and can be so important. You know, it's so easy. We have access to our phones and the camera so easily and readily available. If you're in the moment and you're enjoying the moment, we don't always think of that. I think of that through journaling. You know, of course, I always go through waves Mm -hmm. where I'm like, yes, I'm going to document because with technology, we don't print pictures necessarily the way we used to. So 
unless you regularly print your pictures, there could end up in some digital outer space that people will never see anyway. <laughs> you know, so I think about, you know, just documenting little bits and be like, oh, today we did this and this. And to see all the records and journals and notes that have been kept over the years and even just a simple, I don't know which one, but one of my dad's great aunts or aunts would just keep a little notebook and it would just say, the boys came over for ice cream today. And so when we think of journaling or we think of these things, it's like, oh gosh, you have to sit down and say, okay, today, blah, blah, blah. Right. <laughs> and I think for families, you know, in these circumstances, you know, maybe you do live far away and it's just a phone call or, you know, a video call or you're doing these little things. Finding the way that works for you within your comfort zone and your love language can just make such a difference and make that time so special because at the end of the day, you're right. When we do have to, you know, part ways on this earth, we want to just know that we feel joy and we can feel proud. I just think that's such a wonderful way to kind of wrap up our conversation. And right now we're out of town, but I'd love to be like, let's just go get coffee. I could keep going today. <laughs> <All right. laughs> keep going. <laughs> Well, and I know I but, talked to Tony about the uh, the length of these. I'm like, oh, I, I said, I will easily talk an hour. So I apologize. <laughs> yeah. At a time, no, I'm a talker. Is, so yeah, I often say long story longer because I can do the same thing. I totally appreciate all of it. Just kind of for final closing words. Sometimes I like to ask if you could just have that magic wand, which sometimes we all wish we had, or that magic genie. <laughs> You've shared so many great ideas and resources and tips for people. But if you could have that magic wand where time, money, and anything else didn't really matter, what do you think would be so useful for either people that are in this space becoming caregivers or navigating or even just that are receiving care? You kind of mentioned like advocating, you know, for yourself or helping your client kind of recognize to say, what would you share? What do you wish? existed that doesn't? At the end of the day, the number one thing I tried to get across is that while the appearance of being a caregiver can appear to be a burden at times, and especially my client never wanted to be a burden, you know, and I don't think any of us, I mean, my mother's family went through that as well as they got older and they didn't want to be a burden. And I don't think anybody ever wants to be a burden on somebody else. But that nomenclature is unfortunately used in terms of ourselves and, and it shouldn't be. And I think that that is part of my own personal journey as well is how do you consider yourself, you know, not being a burden in that we all have something to bring to the table. And I would remind her constantly, do you see how much I'm learning? Do you see how much I'm growing? Do you see what you're offering me? Even if what that offer was, was companionship for the day. Even if it was a laugh that day, that there are gifts that were given. They don't look like what we expect them to be, you know, really helping the family and the people surrounding the person needing assistance, really working on verbiage and communication to where there's never this message of you are a burden because nobody's ever a burden, that we're always a gift to each other. Finding the time every day to acknowledge how important that person is to us and that the reason we're spending the time, money, effort, because they're not a burden, because we love them, because we care for them, and because we want them to have the best quality of life we can possibly give them. 
And sometimes we can't give them the quality of life, but we still have that desire and we still want that for that individual, you know, and finding the words to, again, remembering thank yous and I love yous and constant recognition of today was a huge success when this happened, when we, you know, and today we had some failures, but guess what? We got through them and we worked together and we made that happen. And so, you know, constantly being a champion for the other person and reminding them that they're giving more than they understand. It's not a physical thing you can look at, but it's there. I love that. We are not a burden. We are a gift. (laughs) Right. I just want to thank you for giving us your time here today because this is such a great conversation. And, you know, I feel joy, you know, just leaving this space. And I know that listeners that are hearing it, I think will get a lot of great value out of that. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure.